we're doing a series on Jesus, and so um, the idea here, uh, this type of teaching, is a more in-depth look into the scriptures. Uh, typically, there's a lot of life application. Um, I teach a lot of life application on Sundays. In other words, how do you apply this, and what do I do, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, there's another different type of teaching, which is this one. It's a little, it's in-depth. And so this week and probably next week, there's going to be a little bit more in-depth teaching, as was last week. And today is what... Uh, is known in church traditions, we name it a day, we, they call it Palm Sunday, and so today is Palm Sunday, and what Palm Sunday is, is the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem, preparing himself to die on the cross, and so he's entering for the last, entering the last week of his life, leading up to the cross. What's important, and uh, there's some, there's not just, uh, Knowledge about salvation, but as Christians, we have to. Uh, uh, Heinrich, did you make sure the recording's on? Are you doing that? You're, we have awesome guys right here. They're already, they're already rocking it out. There we are. Uh, what, what was going on here is that what I want Christians to understand is I don't want them to see the motives behind some of the things that are going on, and I also want them to understand key principles that are within the Bible. And one of the key principles within the Bible is nobody took Jesus's life. Jesus' life was not taken from him, okay? You do not serve a victimized God. We serve a victorious Savior. Do you understand that? So let's just say it together. Jesus, Jesus. is not a victim. He's, not a He's a victor. John 10 says this, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay my life down, and if I lay my life down, I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. If Jesus says something once, we should pay attention. If he says it twice, we should really pay attention. I have laid it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. This idea of command, for whatever reason, when I was studying this, that word command kept jumping out at me, so I kind of do a little Greek study on it, and it's the Greek word entelos, and it means the consummation of an action. In other words, what's going on here, Jesus, who is God, humbled himself beneath heaven, laying aside his rights as God, although he was still fully God, he chose to not access those attributes. He came in the form of a servant like a man and walked in the power of the Spirit. So everything that was going on in his life was subject to heaven's rule. And so Jesus is standing here, and it's the, the command of heaven, not just over his life, but the, the Father giving the command into creation, that if the Son lays down his life, he has the power to take it up again, is a decree. And so the decree over the cross and over death, in other words, creation had no option but to respond to that. If the Son was going to lay down his life, the consummation of that action, there was to be no other result. He was not staying in the grave. He was coming back. So it wasn't, there, was no, there was no guesswork going on here. Well, maybe he's going to rise. Maybe he isn't. I don't know. Did he forget something? I don't know. You know I don't know, did he? <laughs> but the, the idea here is that the command was given that he will rise. The son will give his life away, and the son will rise again. And he had power over his life. Nobody took it from him. When he's on the cross, the Bible says he gave up his spirit. He didn't even physically expire. He didn't bleed out. You know? He willed his own death. And because he willed his own death, he willed his own life. He willed himself back, raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God by the power of the Spirit according to the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.16. He's declared. The declaration that he is who he says he is was not just in the crucifixion, but it was in the resurrection. He had the power over his own life. The Father gave it to him because he had humbled himself beneath heaven. He needed heaven's decree, and it was granted. Everything Jesus did began with an anointing. You ready? Say it with me. It always begins with an anointing. 
The word Christ means anointed, spirit-empowered. We are called what? I'll give you the C word. We're called what? Christians. What does that mean? We're called religious people. No, we're called Christites, icons, anointed icons, images of the anointed one. That's what the word Christian means. So the idea was that we aren't, we aren't called Jesusites, right? We're not called Biblicists. We're not called Fatherites. We're called Christites, images of the anointed one. Jesus began his ministry, what? Coming out of the desert, empowered by the Spirit, anointed, covered by the power of the Spirit to perform what he was sent to do. He's about to go to his death, right? So Passover, the week, the, 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 what's called Passion Week, or the week leading up to his death, is going to be a series of intentional events. Everything Jesus is going to do during this week, he's doing it on purpose. He's got an end in mind. And, but this, this was a little surprising a little bit to him because he's in Bethany. Bethany was a town just outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus liked to hang out in Bethany. And when he was in Bethany, Bethany, he, st he stayed at the home of, of some friends of his, Mary, Martha, and a guy named Lazarus. Well, leading up to this story, everything is pointing towards the cross, right? So if we understand that there's a progressive vision, God is a visionary God. Everything is within a lens of what he's going to do. The Old Testament is pointing to the birth of Christ, and then we come into the life of Christ. The life of Christ points to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ points to the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ now points to the age of the kingdom. So everything is a series of progression, progressive visions. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's progressing, and he's going to intentionally move through this story. He's in Mary's house, and right before he goes and is going into Passover, he performs a miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead, right? I am the resurrection and the life, not going to be. I am right now. Everything Jesus is, he is right now. He was and is and is to come. And so he, is, he was the resurrection, he is the resurrection, and he forever will be the resurrection. Aren't you glad? You will rise. You will rise. You will live forever. You will not even taste the sting of death. Death will have no sting attached to the believer. Swallowed up in victory, the Bible says. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Immediately engaged, you immediately pass into his world. What a, what a beautiful thing. All for you. Who's like that? Nobody. Nobody should ever take a higher place in your life than Jesus. No one. No one, no how, ever, 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 ever. Nobody loves you like he does. Nobody did for you what he's done for you. Nobody's ever going to do for you what he's going to do for you. There's nobody like him. So he's before Passover, so he raises Lazarus from the dead, and now he's in Bethany, and he's hanging out at Lazarus' house with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they were making him suffer. So Jesus is just hanging out casually with these people, right? This is a, a side of Jesus, that, a side of the Lord that he shows of himself. God does not have favorites. This, is, again, is something to drill into your head. God does not have favorites. He has intimates. Let's say that together. Jesus does not have favorites. He has intimates. Right? You want more favor? Get more intimate. Get closer. You'll have more favor. That's how it works. And so these people were very intimate with Jesus, and so there's a lot of casual conversation that happens between them. There's actually a lot of casual activity that goes on 
between them. They hang out and they talk together. Jesus talks with them quite in, in, in a unique way. He talks to Mary and Martha like he didn't, like virtually like he talks to no one in the scripture. There's a lot of casual stuff going on. And there's even a casual dinner that's happening. And Lazarus was the one that sat at the table. And then out of the back room, Mary comes out with this box of oil, an alabaster box, the Bible would say in another, in an, uh, in another gospel. And she breaks the oil over his head. She busts the box and pours the oil down over his head. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her tears. And the whole house begins to be filled with this aroma. Right? So there's kind of a, a, a conjecture here that um, I would say more spirit-filled um, uh, Scholars look at it this way because they kind of see the word being like a like they see the significance between the connecting points is that this box was made out of alabaster. Well, what's the big deal with alabaster? Well, if in geological terms, alabaster is what's called a metamorphic rock. It's a transitional rock. It's changing states. So it's moving from gypsum ultimately to marble. And so right now, what this state that alabaster is the transitional form. Gypsum becomes marble, so it metamorphosizes over time into another form, right? And so they, they had this uh, alabaster rock, and if you want to look at this spiritually, Jesus is the metamorphic rock. He takes the wasteful, useless gypsum, and he makes you into something that's usable, marble. That's what he does all through Christ. Gypsum in that day was worthless. It was salt without flavor. That's what the Bible's talking about when they said they paved the roads with it. Talking about gypsum. We say, wait a minute, we use gypsum, we use drywall. Well, they didn't do it back then, right? So it wasn't really good for anything. And they, they, so they attached, that, they attached it to that. And so Jesus is a metamorphic rock. She breaks this alabaster box over him, which again, there's a lot of significance. <laughs> Thank you, Carmen. <laughs> there's a lot of prophetic significance to this, uh, to this story because the alabaster was mined and quarried in a place of Egypt. There was the, they couldn't find alabaster just anywhere. It was mined and quarried in Egypt. So the, the idea of the storyline that's connecting this and what people read into this, you're not going to find this in your Bible. There's actually not even a lot of historical uh, proof to this, but it makes for a really beautiful story if you can understand the Passover. What's believed is that this alabaster box, why it was so expensive, was not just the oil that it contained. It contained spikenard, which was an oil that was extracted from the root. The crushing of the root of the plant released the oil, and they would it would and it created a perfume, a very valuable perfume, a very uh, sought-after perfume. That's how the oils released. That's how actually the oils released from your life. You want the oil to be released from your, God, your life, the root of who you are has to be crushed. Well, we don't like that, but that's the truth. Less of, more of him, less of you. That's how the oil is released. That's how the fragrance of Christ is released from us. When we become crushed and he, he, we decrease, he increases. That's how it works. And Jesus' life would be crushed, and the ultimate fragrance of who he was was going to be released. And so it had the, the oil in the box was, was filled with nard. Spike nard is the word. And so the alabaster box was believed to be a family heirloom that was actually brought with Mary's family out of Egypt. This is the, this is the theory. There's no proof of this, but it's the theory, and it actually makes for a beautiful story if you can picture that because it was through the Passover lamb that the, the Jews came out of Egypt. And so she's anointing him with an heirloom of the first Passover. Boom. And he now is going to become the Passover lamb that brings us all out of, out of our Egypt of sin. So it's really beautiful metaphor going on here. And that's why they, they kind of understand that. They're like, why was this box so expensive? Okay, Sparkner was expensive. Alabaster at that time was expensive because they could carve it. But it certainly wasn't worth a year's wages because that's what they were saying. They're saying this is worth a year's wages. 
what made it so expensive. And so they kind of put a conjecture on it that there had to be some other value upon it. Well, what would make it more valuable? So that's the kind of the story behind it. So she anoints him with oil, and the whole house fills with fragrance, right? So the whole room now has the aroma of Christ in it. And, she, and Judas looks at her and says, you wasted it. What a waste. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. He had no intention of giving it to the poor. John comments on the story, and he says, Judas didn't want to give it to the poor. Judas wanted it in the money bag so he could take it. That was the whole point. And what happens in this moment is Mary takes everything that she is and pours it over Christ. And Judas stands there and tells her, you've wasted it. Say it with me. Every time I make a sacrifice for the gospel, there will be a Judas to tell me I'm wasting it. Every single time. That Judas might be your own conscience. It might be your own mind, your own games. So that's a waste of time. That's a waste of effort. You're going to do that? You're going to do what? It's a waste. There's nothing wasted in God's economy. Nothing. He wastes nothing. He uses everything. Nothing is wasted. Nobody does business with God and breaks even. But you need to understand this because this is going to affect you when you give. This is going to affect you when you serve. This is going to affect you. You're going to want to make a sacrifice because the Spirit's going to be compelling you to do so. And in your mind, there's going to be something going, oh, that's not real. I don't think that's really the thing to do. You know, I don't know, that seems like a waste to me. And you have to discern the voice between the Judas and the Spirit. And you need to understand that any time you make a sacrifice for the Lord, there will be the presence of a Judas to speak that to you. Now, don't get mad if somebody says it to you. Oh, you're a Judas. You know, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you're going to church, what a waste of time. That's the voice of a Judas. You're going to serve, what a waste of time. You're going to read your Bible, what a waste of time. What a waste of effort. Why are you doing that? That's such a waste. Every time we do go to do something with this church, every time, I know this because we're ramping up to do this Easter service, or this, um, not just Easter, but the Easter egg hunt, and you know, we're, we're trying to put it together, and just the bombardment, oh, this is a waste. Why are you doing this? You're wasting time, you're wasting energy, you're wasting effort, and I can feel it push against me, but I know it's the voice of the Judas, right? I know, and I'm like, well, maybe it's a waste of time, maybe it's a waste of effort, but as David said, it's before the Lord. He'll take it. We're doing it for the Lord. And so I know there's something good behind it because there wouldn't be this much wasteful opposition to it. So Jesus distinguishes the worship of Mary and Judas. Mary gave it all to him. She said, all for you, for all, all, all of you, for all of me, no problem. Judas worshiped only himself. He looked at Jesus as a means to gain for himself. And it's not an issue of gaining for yourself. Jesus doesn't have a problem with you asking him for more. Peter asked for more. James and John asked for more. They asked for more. He didn't have a problem with them asking for more. He had a problem with the reason why they were asking for more. Judas wanted more only for himself at the expense of God, right? Give me more at the expense of you. Do for me what only I want. That's how he related to Jesus, and that's why he was constantly disappointed. Peter's like, we're giving it all for you, but I want promotion. He's like, no problem. James and John, we're giving it all for you, but I want promotion. No problem. He's a God of promotion, in case you don't know that. He's, not, he's, not, he's okay with his people wanting more so that he can be glorified more, so that they can become who they're supposed to be. He's all right with that. But the attitude here was the problem. You understand what I'm trying to say? Judas's attitude was the problem. He wanted more so that he could be the rock star. He wanted more so everybody would be bedazzled by him. And that was the attitude that Judas was holding. 
Jesus doesn't have a problem with, 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 with the desire for more. Peter said, we gave up everything for you. What do I get? Jesus didn't freak out. He didn't go, oh, haven't I taught you this, Peter? Don't you understand? I want you way down here in the lowly little recesses of what humanity. That's what Christians are to be, just these little scurrying mice everywhere, hiding in the shadows. He said, you gave up everything for me? Rock on. You're going to get a hundredfold in this life and the one become. I will promote you. James and John said, I want to sit in your right hand. Or at least their mother said they didn't have the guts, so they said, Mom, Mom, get over there. Mom, Mom you, know, you know what we want. Go, go, you know. He won't say no to you. you just, just go ask him. So his mother goes and asks him. She's like, no problem. He's like, you know, they want promotion? No problem. Are you able to drink of the cup? That's the only thing he said. He said, as far as the position goes, that's not mine to give. I'm, I'm submitted under heaven right now, so I'm not in a position to give that out right now. But as far as promotion, no problem with promotion. But can you go through the process? That was what he's saying. Prom say it with me. Promotion, Promotion. Requires, requires process. He said, you, can you drink the cup? So he doesn't have a problem with promotion. Again, these are key principles, how you relate to heaven and how you think in terms of your father and how you think in terms of your, how you live. These things that I'm telling you are keys. You have to think this way. This is called the renewing of the mind. Okay, next slide. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Why does he come into Jerusalem? Two reasons. Number one, to fulfill prophetic word. All of the prophets had declared how Christ was going to die, and Jesus is going to fill it all in the time that he has said. And he came to pick a fight. This is a very important thing, again, to understand, and this is how the economy of heaven works. I'm going to give you the economic system, or not the, the not financial, but I'm going to give you how heaven operates. Heaven operates when we value the things that God values. When we don't value the things that God values, heaven and the kingdom and the gospel does not work in the life of the Christian. That's why the church is essentially a glorified moose lodge, right? Well, we, we do orphanages and we do this and we do all that. The Kiwanis Club can build orphanages, people. The church needs to do what only the church can do. We have an ability to do things that only we possess the ability to do. And we need to do that. Yes, build the orphanages. Yes, feed the poor. Yes, do, do all of that. But do what we need to do, or we're no better than the United Way. We're not the United Way. Okay, so in case you didn't hear that, we're not the United Way. Right? This culture of the kingdom is a value of worship, of celebration, of adoration. It is a, it is a culture that values the scripture the word of God, the logos, and it values the prophetic word of God, the rhema. Values the spirit. The Christians were spirit, and, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is word-led, spirit-led, prophetic word-led. Power, exousia. And without them, we are nothing. We're nothing. The church that doesn't value the prophetic word is valueless. The Christian that doesn't value the prophetic word. I understand if you don't even know anything about We've got two camps. We've got those that know the prophetic word. We've got those that have never understood what I'm talking about. Those that value it, and then we have the ones, and the ones that have had experience with it have realized that the prophetic word has often been abused. I'll give you that. I'll give you that people that operate prophetically, they've abused the ability. All right? That's why there needs to be a reclamation on that. There needs to be a redemption of that gift. But it doesn't mean we throw it out. As with many gifts, they've been abused. It's like toys. We don't know what we're doing. Like ray guns. Cutting the house down, you know, because we don't know how to use what we've been given. We have to value these things. This is how heaven works. 
Jesus came to pick a fight. What is he doing? He's going into Jerusalem, and he is going to work these people into a lather. These people, not the people, but the religious leaders wanted him dead. They've wanted him dead since the day he showed up, and he wouldn't let them kill him. But now he's going to provoke them to do that very thing. He's going to provoke them to kill him. Why? Because he's ready. He's ready. He's not taking his life. He's giving it away, and you're going to give it away when I say I'm giving it away, and you're going to kill me when I say you're going to kill me, but not before. Not before. They didn't even kill him. He laid his life down, but they were going to be the instruments of it. And so he gets, they draw near Jerusalem, and they come into Bethany, Mount of Olives. So they're leaving Bethany, okay? So it was a Sunday. Now it's a, is this a Monday? I don't know where I'm at, but anyway. They're leaving Bethany. He's going into Jerusalem. He's about to ride on a, on a donkey. He sends his disciples to go and find the, the foal of a donkey. This is what this verse says. And so Jesus sits upon the foal, the, 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 the young donkey, According to Matthew, they bring two. They bring the mother and the colt. Other translations only give the colt or other gospels, but Matthew's pointing out that the mother went with the colt for whatever reason, probably because the, the colt wouldn't go by itself, right? Because it's a little young little, little uh, donkey. I'm not going. I want mom to go. And then mom goes, and so the colt's like, okay, wherever mom goes. And so Jesus sits upon the colt, and they lead him into Jerusalem. As he's coming from Bethany into Jerusalem, there are masses of people in the city at this time. The city swelled, estimates are two and a half million people during this festival. So they, this festival would swell because Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. Pilgrims from all over the world at this time would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 250,000 lambs were slain on the Passover feast at that time. 250,000. Let's put it in perspective. Okay, I did a little map search. Within two and a half miles of this church, there's approximately 250,000 people. That would be eradicating if every person was a lamb. Every person within two and a half miles of this church would no longer exist. That's how many lambs were slain on, on Passover. The priests would be slaying lambs from all day long. The, the mount of the temple would be soaked in blood. The priests would wear red, white linen robes walking back and forth, sloshing through the mud, through the blood. What's the message of Passover? Oh, it's about Larry the lamb. No, try again. What's the message of Passover? It's about the what? It's about the blood. Lamb, blood. It was about the message of Passover is the blood. Points to the blood. Soaked in blood. Jesus has robes that are what? Dipped in blood. That's what the Bible says. It's about the blood. The Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would sprinkle blood once a year on the Day of Atonement on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So for thousands of years, 1,500 years prior to Christ, the priest would be sprinkling blood. When the ark was brought out, and occasionally it was, it was presented before the people. The entire front of that ark would be covered with blood. What do you think the message of the ark would be? It's about the blood. That's why the Bible calls it the ark of testimony. Well, what's it testifying of? Well, it's testifying of the manna, you know, the rod of Aaron's staff, and of course the Ten Commandments, Kevin. No, it's testifying of the blood, the ark of testimony. They didn't even take the lid off. They didn't have to take the lid off to give the testimony. They just held the ark up. What's the testimony? The testimony is the blood. It's about the blood of Jesus. Where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how it works. He's coming into Jerusalem. There's an entourage with him. Two and a half million people in the city at this time. There was a whole bunch of people that was a crowd that was in Bethany because Jesus was hanging out in Bethany. And so if you're like you're a Jesus freak, you're like, where is the Lord, man? Where's Jesus? Oh, he's in Bethany? You wouldn't be staying in Jerusalem. You'd be go like camping out in Bethany because Jesus was in Bethany. So you have all these people that are camped out in Bethany where Jesus was. They're also there not just to find Jesus. They're there because they're curious about Lazarus. 
Wouldn't you be curious if some dude raised from the dead? Wouldn't you want to talk to that guy? What was it like, man? You know, what was it like? You know, we heard about this. What, what happened? Tell us. And so you have all these curiosity seekers and all these Jesus freaks that are in Bethany. So Jesus is leaving Bethany, right? And he's got this crowd following him. Oons, 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 right? In our generation, we'd be like <laughs> taking pictures, walking with Lazarus, seeing Jesus pointing at him. Hey, man, get me up. Get, put, put this on Facebook. You know? So they would, be, they would be going into Jerusalem, and Jesus was riding the donkey, and the coal. And so out of the city would come all of these people, and they were all following him, and Jesus is coming into the city. And then during the Feast of Passover, such a beautiful picture, and we'll probably see it in the kingdom, they, had what, they, had, they would line the roads because the, you had to go up to Jerusalem. And they, they had a group of songs that they would sing called the Songs of Ascent. Okay, the ascending song. So as the people were ascending into the city, they would sing this collection of songs. And they took it so seriously that they would line the rising roads with worship leaders. And so there'd be guys out there, you know, maybe doing a little bluegrass down the hill. You know, by the time you get up there, you're getting a little more modern. Got some techno worship, as you, you know, different phases of worship. You know, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. You're like, really? They had techno back when Jesus was? I didn't know that. <laughs> But they would have worship as they were going up into the city, and the priests and the, the, the worship leaders would be singing, and the people would be singing back and forth, and they called it singing in the round. So they would sing, who is this king of glory? And the people would sing back, the Lord mighty in battle. And they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the people would sing back, in the highest, in the highest. So they were, they were singing back and forth, so it was all this music and dancing going on. Jesus likes music and dancing, in case you didn't know that. And so he's going into the city. He's being followed by an entourage. He's got a whole other mass of people coming out. And then he's got all these worship leaders lying in the road while Jesus is coming into the city. This is the first time that Jesus accepted worship. Prior to this, he accepted worship, but he kept it down low. He took their worship, but he said, look, don't tell anybody this. Now he's openly receiving it. Why? Because he knows it's, it's, it's the time. It's the time. And so he's coming into the city. People are dancing, spinning around, singing. And they're singing Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. People are throwing down palm branches. All this stuff's going on. He's riding and coming into the city, fulfilling a prophetic word, riding on a colt, okay? Lowly riding on a donkey. He's entering the city. The people are singing. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are absolutely freaking out. At, and it's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants the people to know who he is, but he wants these people to, to tick. He wants to tick these guys off. He wants to expose them for who they are. And so they're freaking out. Why are they freaking out? Because Jesus is riding on a colt. They would know the prophetic word. They're like, who does this dude think he is? Are you serious? He's riding on a donkey, like the prophet said. He's presenting himself as the Messiah, the son of David. Do you hear these people? He's not stopping them. He's not doing anything about it. And so the Pharisee would probably walk right up to Jesus as he's going on the donkey. He's like, make them shut up, dude. Are you hearing what they're saying? Are you hearing what they're saying? Probably walk right up to him. Look, make them be quiet. And Jesus said, if they don't quiet out, the rocks will. Why? Because it's the time. It's the hour. The Pharisees were incensed. They're like, oh, my gosh, who does this guy think he is? And so he goes into the city. Next slide. He presents himself according, as the Messiah according to the prophet. So after that, after he kind of got everybody, if everybody's happy, woo, Jesus is here. This is going to be awesome. Did you see him coming in on a donkey? Oh, my gosh. Didn't the Bible say something about that? Yeah, I think it does somewhere. We should ask the chief priest. Oh, get away from us. Get away from us. We don't want to answer that. Meanwhile, the chief priests are in, the, in their little cubby holes or whatever, getting together, and they're plotting his murder. 
because they knew exactly what he was saying. Okay? You have to understand that. There was no mystery what Jesus was saying. He was talking to them in the language of the prophets, and he was talking to them according to the scripture that they were required to know. So there was no mystery. The, the, Jesus knew what he was doing, and every, everybody that had any sense knew exactly what he was saying. The people knew he was claiming to be Messiah because they were calling him the son of David. That's a messianic term. They knew, they knew what that meant. They didn't use that. He didn't go running around calling people the son of David. He just didn't do that. And so he did that. And so he goes back to Bethany, spends the night. Monday he goes to Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, he's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree. Fig tree looks like it's going to have, this is what happened the week leading up to his crucifixion. Fig tree looks like it's going to give him fruit. Goes to the fig tree. Fig tree has no fruit. He curses it. Okay? So I'm going to break off here for a second because here, we, this again, this is important theologi theology to understand. So here's, what I, here's the argument that I get. Oh, Kevin, you know, you don't understand. You know, God curses, and so a curse is evil. So evil comes from a good God. He cursed the fig tree, didn't he? So evil's coming from a good God. Isn't that true? He curses in the book of Malachi. So evil's coming from a good God. Isn't that true? You don't understand the Bible. You don't understand the Bible. Cursing in God's economy means absence of blessing. It doesn't mean the proclamation of evil. It means ble no blessing. You understand the difference? Blessed, a curse was understood. Heaven's economy is understood that there's no blessing on it. It doesn't mean that God is pronouncing evil on them. It meant, now there may be a proclamation of what the result is going to be because there's no blessing. That's the point. So there, we cannot attribute evil under any circumstances to a good God, ever, ever. He says he's good all the time. Every good and perfect gift, Jesus said there's none one but the Father. Who, you know, we have no right to attribute evil to him, ever, ever. So the problem is with our theology. The problem is the way we're thinking. So if we think that God's evil, we have a problem, right? You understand that? The problem's ours. We have to figure it out. We have to turn this around and see, well, what is actually going on here? Well, what does the word curse actually mean? Oh, well, let's look at that. Now we have, it means it's, it's an absence of blessing. So Jesus said there's no blessing on you. You present yourself as having something, and you don't. There's no blessing on you. And the, tree, and the tree withered. And so all through this week, he's given prophetic signs. And the tree was a sign of Israel that showed, himself, showed themselves as being spiritual, but they were completely empty. They had all of the vanities. They had all of the procedures. They had all of the processes. Oh, so perfect. But they were spiritually fruitless. No fruit at all. God is not concerned about the size of the tree. He's concerned about the quality of the fruit. Herein is my Father glorified that you what? Look good? Herein is my Father glorified that you show yourselves with great vanity. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Okay? It's not about the appearance, about the substance of the fruit. We have to understand that. And what Israel was concerned with was the, the, the appearance and the priests looked amazing with their glittering robes. And the temple looked amazing with its, its shining thing. And all of that stuff's important, but it's not the priority. You understand that? It's important to present these things well and to have excellence, but that's not the priority is the fruitfulness. That's the priority. You get that? We run the risk. I, I prayed about this, and I was talking to the Lord on the way here because I kind of felt like an unction to say it. And uh, I prayed, and I asked the Lord if I had permission to say it. And I felt like he was like, say it. So I'm going to say it, all right? <laughs> We run the risk in our generation, particularly among millennials. We have crafted and created churches that are all based on vanity. We have the most amazing light show. Nothing wrong with a light show. I'm all for the light show. We have 
Worship teams that look like they walked out of an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog. They're genetic specimens. They've got hair cooler than you and I will ever have. All of the most modern tattoos. They've got the whole thing going on, and man, they look good. But we run the risk of creating style without substance. Because what we do is we present something that's culturally attractive, but there's no spiritual power behind it. It's a, it's a very fine line that we have to be aware of. Because oftentimes, you're like, man, that church, did you see the light show? Woo! Man, that dude, he jumped off the speakers. He did like the spin and kick. They got like a Beyonce team up there dancing. I mean, and all that's fine. But if the, if the only present, if it's all about presentation, we have a problem. We have a problem. And oftentimes, that's what we're doing. And we're sacrificing substance in order to get style. And Jesus is interested in substance. You can clearly see. He didn't go, oh, the fig tree doesn't. Hey, guys, listen, I just want to show you this fig tree. Now, I know it doesn't have any fruit on it, but, man, don't you guys think it looks good? Peter, get the cell phone out. Take a picture of this. This looks amazing. I know there's no fruit here, but, hey, it looks good. Is that what he's going for? He's not going for that. Now, if you can look good and be fruitful, well, then all the more, you know. But he doesn't care if you look good. He cares if you're fruitful, right? We were in uh, Arizona, and um, uh, <laughs> the people we were staying with, they had two fruit trees, right? They had this big tree behind the, the house, and this little, little scrawny little dwarf tree in the front, right? Big tree couldn't produce any oranges, but little tree, man, it was pumping them out, right? Pumping them out. Really good tree, really good fruit. And you would think, if you're looking, now, which tree is going to present? If you're going to buy one, you go, I want that big one. That big one, man, that big one's going to, but it was a little tiny one that was producing all the fruit. He's not concerned with the size of the tree. He's concerned with the quality and the substance of the fruit. That's the point. Aren't you glad, right? That's good news. It's good news. You don't have to look like an Abercrombie model to, to, to bear fruit in the kingdom, right? It just, I mean, I know if you look at American churches, that's not what we're saying anymore. I mean, I know, at least in my world, I'm like, you know, they're like, oh, how old are you? Oh, you're over 30? Oh, I'm sorry, you can't sing on the worship team. You need to go sit in the audience again. I am not lying to you. That is literally where churches are going. And it's like bebop on Sunday morning. We got the bebop going on. Okay, bebop. I don't care if you're 15. I don't care if you're 16. I don't care who you are. Bring the presence. Bring the glory. It always begins with anointing. The anointing is required. Okay? Anointing is required. Anyway. So they, Jesus goes in. He corrects the vanity. He speaks to the vanity. He goes into the temple. He goes past the court of the women. Where we see here last week, Jesus was in the court of the women. The Jews had segmented worship. God never prescribed it this way. He, he gave one prescription of how he wanted to be worshipped and what the room was to look like. But they decided they were going to go a step further, so they added a couple of courts on it so they could control. They put in a court of the Gentiles. Yeah, I think we, those, those dirty Gentiles shouldn't be over here with us. And the women? <laughs> we definitely can't have the women that close. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a court of the women. And we're going to create a court of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles, of course, the men particularly, they can be closer. But the women, they got to, they got to stay out here, right? Nowhere in the Bible did it say that. Absolutely nowhere. They had created it. Jesus, you find him most often hanging out in the court of the women. What's the message? Jesus hangs out with the people who could go no further, right? He had the right. He, I told last week he could have walked into the Holy of Holies itself. He was the only one that had that exclusive right. He could have went in and out of there anytime he wanted to. He chose not to. He hung out with the people who could go no further. That's what he did. And so now he comes into Jerusalem. So now he passes through the court of the women, and he goes to the next court, which was the court of the Gentiles. You had to be a converted Gentile. If you were an unconverted Gentile, well, you could stay back here with the women. 
You could be, you could be a woman, and you could trace your lineage back to uh, Sarah herself, and you could go no further. You, but if you were an unconverted Gentile, you'd stay with the women. But if you were a converted Gentile, you could go into the court of Gentiles. You couldn't go any further, but you could stay in the court of the Gentiles. So what the Jews had done is they had turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace, buying and selling, right? And so the people were required to give offerings. So they would come, and there was general offerings. That was in the court of the women, you know? So they put the, the, the general offering out here. Then there was a temple offering that they had to present, and the temple offering required them to give temple money. So they had to exchange their money, right? So they had to go. You couldn't come from Italy and bring your your whatever, your denarii. You couldn't come from Greece and bring your drachma. You had to exchange it for temple money. You couldn't even use Jewish money. You had to use temple script. And who controlled the temple script? Well, of course, the, the Sanhedrin. The ruling Jewish council controlled the script. So they controlled the exchange rates. They controlled everything. So they put it into a marketplace in the inner, in the inner thing. It had nothing to do with the offering. It had to do with the extortion that was going on in there. And they had to, the people had to present an offering. In particular, on this feast, they had to bring a lamb. Well, they couldn't just bring any ordinary lamb. They had to bring the kosher certified lamb. You know? Marty brings it all the way from Italy or wherever he's from. He brings, his, he brings this lamb. He's been grooming this lamb for a year. This lamb's now going to be the family sacrifice. And they come in. They go, no, sorry, Marty. You got a little chip there in the hoof. There's no chip in the hoof. Yep, yep, there's a chip in the hoof. Come over here. Bill, come over here. Look at that. You see that chip in the hoof? Oh, yeah, it's right down there. Sorry. Sorry. But you guess what? You're in luck. We have kosher certified lambs right over here. Right here. For $350, we got you some kosher. But wait a minute. I can buy that same lamb for $35. Well, you better go back home and get it then. Because today it's $350. And if you wait till tomorrow, it's going to go up to $400. So they were extorting the people. And the extortion of the people, the issue was they were misrepresenting the Lord. The perception in the people's minds was God is corrupt. Because look at what his priests are doing. He asks us for an offering, which is fine. We love to give the offering, but he's they're, they're corrupting us. They're unjust balances. That's why Jesus slammed them for unjust balances. That's why the prophets slammed them. Why did he slam them? Because they were extorting the people, and the extortion wasn't even the issue. The misrepresentation of the Lord was the problem. That is the problem. They misrepresented him. That's why Jesus is like, are you a teacher and you don't understand that? He tells them over and over, haven't you read, haven't you read, haven't you read? So they came to Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple. He goes right into the court of the Gentiles, flips over, high-fives a few people going through the court of the women, swags into the court of the Gentiles, and just goes, all right, boom. Starts throwing over tables, driving out the merchandise, getting everything out, then stands up and makes a proclamation. And he says, this house is a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. If riding on a donkey, singing the Hosannas wasn't bad enough, he really is working them up now, okay? Now they're like, oh my gosh. All right, I could look past the whole donkey thing, dude. I could look past that, but man, he just totally put me out of business today. He's gonna die, and that's what he wanted. But he proclaimed it in the house of the nations because that court of the Gentiles was where all the nations gathered. It was the gathering of the nations in the court of the Gentiles. And so he cast them out. And so the place where the nations gathered, what was the problem? Their attitude was, how dare you? Next slide. Jesus again goes back to Bethany. He's got what he wanted. The table's set. Now he goes into Jerusalem. And guess what's happening? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, are waiting for him. They got four questions ready for him. We're going to trap this guy. We're going to get him to blaspheme. We're going to get him to make, we're going to catch him in his words. And we're going to kill him. That's what we're going to do. 
That was their attitude. They got up in the morning. They walked past the fig tree. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. But the disciples noticed that it was dried up from the roots. Jesus didn't acknowledge it because there was no glory on it. So he just moved right past it. The Pharisees are waiting. They got four questions. These four questions are found in Matthew 21 and 22. First question is, is where do you get your authority? What are they asking? Where do you get off? They were couching it in the idea of where is your authority? Where, do you get your authority from heaven? They were kind of asking in this sort of ambiguous way. But what they were really asking is what right do you have to turn over our money tables? What right do you have to stand up and call us thieves? What right do you have? Jesus is like, oh, I'll give you, I'll give you a, I'll answer your question, but you got to answer one for me first. John's baptism, was it of men or was it of God? And so they huddled up. Okay, let's huddle up, huddle up. Okay, we're going to ask this question, right? Okay. If we say his baptism was of heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? If we say his baptism was of man, then the people are going to get mad at us because they believe him. So what are we going to do? Oh, we're just going to tell him we don't know. Okay, so they go back to him and they go, we don't know. And he goes, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. He was exposing their hearts. That's the idea. The light was shining on their heart. He was showing them that light was in front of you, and you've denied it. And why have you denied it? They can't even bring themselves to do that. So he tells them a couple of parables. He tells them the parable of a vineyard, of a man who owned a vineyard. He entrusted it to stewards. He went to get some fruit of the vineyard. Jesus wants fruit of his vineyard, guys. He invests in you that you may bear fruit. You're bearing fruit this morning. You're here. You're serving him. Your hearts are bowed. This is the minimum standard of Christians. You know, when in doubt, do the minimum standard, okay? Because you can always guarantee you're going to bear fruit off that. That's what Jesus said. You should, at least done with the you should at least entrusted yourself to the stewards, which is the house. The, the calling is another issue. So, so he went to get fruit. They killed the servants. They wouldn't give him fruit. So the master says, I'm going to send my son. He'll listen to my son. So he sent the son. They killed the son. And he looks at him and he goes, and what do you think will happen to those who run the vineyard after they killed the son? Doesn't blink. Looks right at him. He knows what they, they knew what he was saying. They knew that the Messiah, the one to come, was the Banah, the one who came from God, considered to be his son. Psalm 2 actually says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. They knew what he was saying. He was referencing himself, and he was referencing them. Again, he's getting them to, like, oh, my gosh. You know, I'm starting to sweat. The hair on my arm's standing up, man. You know, he was, <laughs> to whom are you loyal was the second question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The issue wasn't an issue of paying taxes. The issue was an issue of loyalty. Are you loyal to the temple and the kingdom of the Jews, or are you loyal to Rome? And he said, bring me a coin. Looks at the coin, says, whose picture? He says, Caesar. They're like, then give it to Caesar, but give to God where it says God. So what's he saying? I'm not loyal to this political system. I'm not loyal to this religious system. I am loyal to heaven and heaven alone. That was what they were asking him. And again, they could say nothing because they thought they had him. If he says he's loyal to the Jews, then we're going to tell the Romans. If he says he's loyal to the Romans, then we're going to tell the people. Either way, he loses. Well, they didn't anticipate his, his answer. <laughs> I'm loyal to neither. I'm loyal to heaven. And then they asked him the doctrine. The Sadducees come to him, and they said, what is your doctrine as far as the resurrection? Interesting, from a group of Sadducees who neither believe in the resurrection, nor do they believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in any miracles whatsoever, including the resurrection. And so they're asking him a hypocritical question, but they're asking him nonetheless. And Jesus tells them, this is one of the most powerful things in the scripture. And we have churches today that deny the power of God, and that is a great mistake. Only place Jesus told anyone, you are greatly mistaken, was this group of people. Why? Because they denied the power of God. They denied the spirit. They denied the miracles. They denied the resurrection. They said, no, not happening. No miracles, no prophetic word, no nothing. They denied it. Jesus told them, you're greatly mistaken. 
your error, you do not know the scripture. That's the first part of your error. And the second part of it is you do not have ever experienced the power of God. Therefore, you're greatly mistaken. Churches that do not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, the prophetic word of the Spirit, they do not believe that God is still doing it today. I don't care who you are. You are greatly mistaken. Jesus is alive today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the Spirit is in the world performing miracles, bringing, bringing prophetic word, re words of revelation, words of insight to this day. That's right. Come on. Give him glory. Aren't you glad he doesn't take his spirit away? Aren't you glad he releases it? He releases him. So he said, you're greatly mistaken. So he blew them away. Then lastly, a, a, a scribe comes and says, what's the greatest commandment? And we're like, okay, we got him. We got him here. <laughs> we got him. He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe goes, wow. Wow, that, that, the scribe was actually impressed. He's like, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good answer. I can see that. And Jesus says, if you can see that, then you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Because only one person out of this whole group actually got any revelation out of the things Jesus was saying. And the scribe got a word. He's like, wow, man, that, I got that. That's really good. And Jesus said, if, you, if you've got revelation, you're not far from the kingdom. Next slide. Tuesday, Jesus, Judas also agreed to betray Judas on this day, or Jesus on this day. Judas agreed to betray, Judas agreed to betray Jesus. Judas was discouraged. He looked at Jesus as a way for him to achieve all of his ideals. And Jesus wasn't bringing him there according to the way Judas wanted. And so Judas became very embittered towards Jesus and decided he was going to sell him out. Judas's perspective was, I wasted three years of my life following you. Now we're here in the temple. You came in on a donkey. I was jazzed. And this is all you're going to do? Really? Okay, I'm out of here. And so he went and sold Jesus out. And he went to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. He said, what will you give me for him? And they go, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver which is the price of a slave. And Judas said, I'll take it. Joseph was sold by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver. Thursday comes. Evening begins. Wednesday is what's called a silent day. There's not a lot of motion going on on Wednesday. But we, if you read you know, the narratives, Thursday comes and it, be, and it focuses on the Passover meal. So if you under, this is, again, Jewish economy. i got two more slides and we're done. So Jewish economy is... This slide and one more. Jewish economy is the day begins on the, in the evening. So when the sun sets, it starts the new day. Their day was reckoned from sundown to sundown. So when the day set, it began the next day. So technically, when the sun went down on Thursday, it was Friday to them. So the day had begun. And so evening comes. They have the Passover meal. Jesus goes out into the garden, right? And he's out in the garden. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to work my way back into this. I feel like I'm supposed to say it. Um, psalm 118 is a song of the Messiah, it's, um, and also in that psalm, it's this is the day that the Lord has made. I think it's Luke's. Luke's gospel tells us that when they went out to the garden, they sang a song. Again, what song did they sing? Probably a song of the ascent, which were Psalm 113 to 118, which were the songs that were sung during the Passover. So they would probably, Jesus would be singing it, but more than likely he was singing Psalm 118, and the declaration of Psalm 118 is this is the day that the Lord has made. Well, what is the day? Oh, this is the day. This is the day. You know, we skip around thinking it's like, and it's a happy song, but Jesus was happy at singing it. But the significance to him was this is the day. Evening is begun. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day, the appointed day that I am to die. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will celebrate it. I will not run from it. I will run to it because he's the son of David. David didn't run from the giant. He ran at the giant. 
So Passover begins. After the Passover meal, they go out into the garden. Man betrayed God in a garden. Huh? That's what happened in Genesis. Man will again betray God in a garden. Judas will betray him in a garden. But Jesus will redeem it. So what was lost, Jesus is, everything about Christ is the reclamation. He's reclaiming what was lost in order to give it back. He, whatever we lost, he goes and gets it back and hands it back to us. I mean, really? It's so amazing. So salvation is initiated in the garden. The word for salvation in the Bible is a Greek word called sozo, right? Sozo's he saved, healed, and delivered. We think that when Jesus came to die on the cross and the whole process of the cross simply meant spiritual salvation. It's not true. We have to understand our scripture a little bit better because the, the idea of the gospel is it's a holistic gospel. It's the whole person. Jesus died to redeem the spirit, the soul, and the body. He goes into the garden and he prays. And he prayed so hard, what happened? Come on, Catholic school even teaches you this. That's right, blood came from his brow. Right? That'll make an Episcopalian say amen right there. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, joke. I'm, I'm, I'm humoring myself as we go, so forgive me. <laughs> so he's praying in the garden, and blood is coming from his brow, and he says, my soul is poured out unto death, and he's in anguish, and he's anguishing, and he's anguishing, and then he concludes this anguish with not my will, but your will be done. What is he doing? He is breaking the bondage of human emotional suffering. He is paying the price for emotional suffering so that man can receive healing back from the Lord in the arena of the emotions and in the arena of the soul. That's what he's doing. Sweating blood in the garden has nothing to do with salvation. And his will was broken. So what happened? He redeemed human will. Human will was broken, overcome in that moment. So now human will can be overcome. That's what he was doing. Then he goes from there, they arrest him, and they start whipping him, ripping flesh off of his back. I've always asked people when they say it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus doesn't heal, I'm like, what are the whips for? Why, did, why was he whipped? Well, he was whipped for our transgressions. Yeah, but what, what does the Bible say in relationship to the flesh being torn off his back? By his stripes. We're, oh, that's spiritual, Kevin. That has nothing to do with spiritual healing. The cross is the spiritual healing. He suffered the separation and the spiritual separation on the cross, not on the, not on the post, okay? Again, get their th we have to get our theology correct. He suffered the pain in the, in the emotion to heal the emotion. He suffered the pain in the flesh to bring redemptive power to the flesh, that healing might come to human flesh, that Jesus, who walked in divine power, now paid the price for that ability to be released. That's the point wasn't an exercise in vanity. He had no reason to take stripes on his back for spiritual healing. It has nothing to do with spiritual healing. Nothing. Spiritual healing is when he was separated. I, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the price. And after that, the darkness came upon the earth, and he said, now it's done. Now it's done. Spiritual atonement was on the cross. Emotional atonement was in the garden. Will. Man's will brought the bondage. Jesus breaks man's will in the garden, takes the stripes upon his back, right, to pay the price for physical healing. Why don't we see physical healing? Have you prayed for the sick? You pray for the sick? You will never see physical healing if you don't pray for the sick, okay? Every Christian is given the ability and the power by the Spirit, according to the gospel, to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Oh, well, I just don't believe that. Read your Bible. 
You better cut that right out of Matthew 28. You better cut that right out of Mark 16. You better just eliminate those chapters altogether because that's the commission. The commission. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. That is the commission upon every believer, not just the pastor, every Christian. I had a friend. I used to complain to the Lord all the time. He'd tell me these crazy healing stories. I'd hear him say these crazy healing stories, and I'd be like, what? And I'd be like, wow, that's really cool. And I'd go back, and I'd go, no way. Are you serious? You know, I'd be telling the Lord this, right? And the Lord's like, and he would, he would make statements like, I pray for 200 people a week. For the, I pray for the sick, like 200 people a week. And the Lord says to me, do you pray for 200 people a week? Do you? Well, maybe if you pray for 200 people a week, you might actually see some of the miracles he's, see, he's seeing. And I was like, I don't think I prayed for 200 people in 10 years. I don't think I, you know. I mean, if I had to be honest, and it really confronted me, and it really dealt with me, and I began to change my perspective altogether. All That's what we need to do. But we, this is important to understand. Don't let anybody tell you Jesus doesn't heal. He heals. Yes, he does. Right. Don't let anybody tell you that speaking in tongues is not of God. You know what I tell them? They say, oh, speaking in tongues is not of God. You know what I tell them? You're too late. I speak in tongues. I mean, you, dude, you should have got me like 25 years ago, and you might have convinced me, but, you know, I'm long past that point. You can't see Jesus. Well, Jesus doesn't heal today. You're too late. I've seen him heal. I've seen him heal. I'll give you a testimony right now. We got time, right? We got to do. You got anything time? I'm going to give you a testimony because it's his glory. My wife had a cyst on her tumor, a tumor on her, on her ovary a few years back. Some of you know parts of the story. I'll tell you the final part of the story. She had a cyst that was too big, was beyond the measure that they're comfortable with, so they want to take out her left ovary. So I'll tell you, my, I'll tell you from you from my perspective. So we're sitting in there, we gotta send us to a specialist, because of course doctors won't tell you that. You gotta go to this specialist, that's what we're sitting there, and the guy's like, the guy's just casually going, listen, we got this robot. So the robot's gonna come in there, gonna surgically remove your left ovary, it's not gonna be a problem, blah, 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 blah. I am like sitting there freaking out. I'm like, I'm sweating on the inside. I'm like, what? You know, of course I'm trying to find Jesus, but it's a little hard to find Jesus in that moment. I don't know if you've ever been in those moments, but you know, I was in that moment. And, I, and then I'm sure he's just nodding and everything. And then she starts going, well, what if the tumor gets smaller? And I'm like looking at her, I'm like, what? She's like, no, what really, what if it gets smaller? And the guy's like, listen, this is a, uh, a specific type of tumor. He named it. And he said, they never get smaller, Sherry, ever. He's like, but what if it gets smaller? It's like, if it gets smaller, he was like, she's like, how small has it got to be so there won't be any surgery? And he names this number, whatever it is, the number of thing they use. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, if it got below that, then we, won't, uh, we wouldn't have to perform surgery. Because it, it never happens. And so he's walking us out the hallway, you know, and, uh, you know, and all of his really, I mean, this expensive guy, you could totally tell. He was like, you know, I mean, his shoes were like just screaming at me. I was like, dang, wow. <laughs> I mean, that was always impressive. Was just, I'm sorry. But anyway, he's walking us out the hallway. And so we get in the car, and I'm like looking at her. I'm like, you okay? You all right? Sherry looks right at me. She goes, devil's not taking my left ovary. She's like, no way. She's like, I'm not giving up that. She's like, he is not going to take my left over. She's like, I will fly the world and have people lay hands on me. But she's like, that is not going to happen. And so what does she do? Every single opportunity that she had to be around people of faith, she had them pray for her. Wasn't the one little poof, little magic dust thing. She said, I'm going to pound it until it goes, until it goes. And she had, we had prayer nights. She'd come to prayer nights. She'd go, okay, everybody gather around. Pray for me, boom, the whole thing. Drive up, guy, oh, there's a guy in Boca, he does healing, whatever, woo, you know, crazy event, got done, you know, got to put up with all the, you know, it was a little bit of a circus with some trapeze artists going, I mean, it was, it was nuts. But then she went up to him at the end and said, hey, I need you to pray for me. Hey, just run your finger on the, on the mouse pad, um, Tito. There you go. And he prays for her, 
whatever. We go back to the doctor about two months later. The thing's gone down. They're freaking out. The nurse writes down a report and says, this is a case study. I've never seen this happen. Well, long story short, I'm making it short. Here we go, not my long version. She just went to the doctor a couple of weeks ago, and she kept feeling the pain. And she's just like, I feel like there's a pain in, in the left ovary again. And she's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so uh, uh, she goes back to the doctor. They, they perform an entire whatever it is that they do. And they tell her, they're like, this is crazy. She's like, you have like no cysts at all. She's like, it's as if your ovaries and your reproductive system is like a 20-year-old. That's what the lady said to her. Are you kidding me? Come on. You say, does that happen all the time? I don't know if it happens all the time, but we should press in until we can get it to happen all the time. You understand what I'm saying? We should push for this. If it's ours, we should push for it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that we bat a thousand. I would rather, you know the doctors, if they can get you just to like 15 or 10 degrees of pain relief, they consider it a success. Oh wow, we lowered your pain threshold 10%. I mean, we lay hands on people that are in pain and we see 20, 30% every time of increase less of pain. Jesus can do a whole lot better than a doctor. He's not against doctors, I'm gonna tell you that. He's not against doctors, he's, a guy, he's against being second. That's the idea. We go to him first, we press in, we press in, we press in, we do all that we can. It's again, it's a side story, but I think I wanted to give him glory on that, and so there you go. Jesus has his flesh torn, last slide. He goes to the cross. The lady even told her, he's like, you might want to be careful, Sharers. You look like you can really still get pregnant. That's what he told her. I was like, oh, great. She's like, it's looking really fruitful down there. <laughs> I don't know, man. I was like, okay. All right. <laughs> Jesus did it for you. This is the point. And I know there's been people, I want to go back to this, because I know there are people that are here and say, man, I got prayed for and I didn't get healed. I understand that. I understand that. But you have to move past the spirit of offense, right? We cannot allow the enemy to offend us on what we do not know. We cannot allow the enemy to offend us on what we cannot manifest. You understand that? Just because we cannot manifest the power does not mean the power isn't there. The power is there, okay? It's there. We may not know how to manifest it, pull on it. And here again, Christian, we're Christians. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men, correct? Why did he use a fishing analogy? This is, again, for you, those of you who are of the spirit, you need to understand this. He used a fishing analogy. Why didn't he say, follow me, and I'll teach you how to herd sheep, I'll teach you how to plant trees, I'll teach you how to be a gardener if you follow me. He said, I'll teach you how to fish men. What he tell me? What's he saying? I'm going to teach you how to pull from one world into another. That's what he was saying. That's the idea. That's the prophetic meaning for those who will see it. I'm going to teach you to pull resources from another world into this one. That's the idea. I'm going to teach you how I pull from heaven's economy into this one. And if you follow me, I'm going to show you how to pull resources from that world into this one. The resources of that world are there. Healing is there. Power is there. Provision is there. And it's already been released and activated. We don't know how to manifest it. That's the problem. We don't know what we're doing. I was praying. Man, I'm to really, if you guys got a minute, I, know, yeah. I feel like I'm supposed to share this. I keep trying to close. I know I'm going long. I've had a bad habit in 1130 of going long. So if you want it long, you come on in here in 1130, and we're going to party, it seems, right? I was praying, and I was asking the Lord about healing, and I was talking to him, and I'm like, I believe this, but why can we not manifest it? 
and I saw like a, I mean, it's a, no, it's a, but I saw like a, almost like a, a primitive person chiseling with a stone, chiseling on a stone. And I felt like the Lord was showing me your knowledge of the, the human knowledge of this subject is primitive. You don't know what you're doing. You're primitive. And I felt like the Lord was dealing with me in that, you know, because if you ever hear the Lord, it's like dimensions of what he's saying. It's like he's not saying one thing. He's saying a bunch of stuff off of that. I felt like what he was saying was that he wants to sophisticate the knowledge. He'll sophisticate the knowledge of healing if someone will believe him for it. But we see one healing and we're like, woo, you know, we get crazy. We do a worldwide ministry off of one healing. I mean, is that, that's not the point. That's not the point. The, the, the point is to learn how to do this and then make it operable. As a Christian, what you have been given by the Lord is yours by right of inheritance. What you have experienced now belongs to you. What you have received, you now carry. Is God broken you through financially? You carry that. That is a room you can go in and out of anytime you want. Okay? Share my own story again real quick just so you get this. Okay? Felt like one time, I'm like, oh, God, I'm having all these financial problems. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Help me out, Lord. Help me out, Lord. And the Lord's like, I've given you keys, Kevin. I've given you keys. What is he saying? Have I broken you through before? Have I broken you through? Have I provided for you? Have I rescued you? Then that room is yours. Go and stand back in that place. And so I would go back and remember the place that he had brought me from. And I would stand from that place that he had delivered me from, and I would draw the power from that place. And I'm like, he did it before, he'll do it again. I own this. That's why somebody who's received healing, you carry that. Whatever the arena that you've carried, we all carry it, but people in particular that have received it, you carry it. And so that's why people are like, oh, whatever they're struggling with, I'm like, oh, hey, come over here. You know? And I, I try to coach people on how to release what they've received it's just, it's just dynamics that we have to operate in and things that we have to do. But this is what the Lord wants. It's what he wants. I'm telling you right now, it's what he wants. It's what he wants. You know, it's what he wants. He has not withdrawn his spirit. He's empowered it. He's released it. And he did it all for you. And now we're going to take communion. He said he will see the labor of his soul and he be satisfied. You are the reason Jesus did it all. You are the reason. By knowledge of my righteousness, servant would justify many. And he will, bear the iniquity, he will bear their iniquities. The New Testament says, For the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despising the shame. Well, what was the joy? People say, oh, the joy was because he was going to rise from the dead. That's not the joy. The joy is seeing all of you. The joy is seeing all of you coming to him. The joy is seeing you forever forgiven. The joy is seeing you forever with him. The joy is seeing you now in a relationship with him. That's the joy. You are the joy of the Lord. No one is more worthy than Jesus. And so, Jody, you can come up. And what's going to happen if uh, somebody's man the tables, that's fine. What we're going to do is we're going to take communion. And what communion is is it's a representation of what